In many ways, Revelation can be seen as a book of books. And at the throne room of God, we see a very important book. But what's more fascinating than the book itself is the idea of who can and cannot open it and even look upon it. We'll talk about this book on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we are at Revelation chapter 5. A couple, three weeks ago, we were on Revelation chapter 4 when we got our introduction, our first view to the throne room of God. And then the last two episodes, we kind of took a a little break, a little interlude to look at the controversy of the so-called rapture. And now we are back to the book of Revelation proper, and we are at chapter five. And as I alluded to in the introductory statement, we chapter five is focused around one of the several books that are pretty important in, in Revelation. And this is actually, you can technically call it the, the maybe seventh or even eighth, no, maybe even the ninth book that we encounter in Revelation. And that we, the first book is the book itself, because uh, in chapter one, John is told to write everything he sees. Then he writes seven letters or seven books to seven churches. And now we are on, uh, I guess you can call this book number nine. So let's just dive right in and start by reading uh, Revelation chapter five, which we should be able to get through in this episode. Chapter five, verse one. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all of them and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Okay, and that is Revelation chapter 5. So as we can see, the, the summary of this uh, this chapter, very short chapter, very short in length and in idea, 
is that there's a, a book, I call it a book, it's actually a scroll, but it's called a book in some translations. This, there's a scroll, no one can open it. Um, a lamb is found who can't open it, and then the rest of the passages just praise for this. But this seems pretty simple and straightforward, but as we know here on Faith by Reason, we don't just take things at face value, we take a deeper dive, and as usual, there's a bunch of stuff that we can uh, really get into and, and chew on here. So let, let's just start breaking down uh, these verses and see wh where, where it goes. Starting at with the, with the first verse. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Well, him who sits on, who sat on the throne, that's pretty obvious, pretty clear, hopefully. That is God the Father, that is Jehovah. He sits on the throne. We saw in chapter four that this is who is on the throne is Jehovah. He is just full of light. This is the throne room of God. So that's who he. That's who it is. And he has a scroll, a book, or a scroll. Just look at the, the difference between the two. Uh, a, a scroll is, you know, it's obviously a, a parchment of paper that is rolled up onto uh, some type of, you know, a centrical device, either a, a, a reed or uh, just some type of, you know, long metallic or or wooden structure piece. And a book is is. Uh, a codex as we think of it and, and a codex is again our basic book where you have pages that are on top of each other and they're sealed on the sides so this is a scroll you know it's called a book in some in certain translations you know a little bit of I'm getting a little nerdy there but I just want to make sure we understand the difference between the two so this is a scroll this is parchment that is rolled up and it is sealed it is a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals this is significant because it tells you these this description tells you what this scroll is it's not just any scroll it's a scroll that that's written on the inside and the back and sealed is it is a it's a legal document more specifically it is a deed of trust and or a last will and testament and why is it written and we know that because it's written inside and on the back why because what's written inside is the actual description of the property that's being transferred over or the description of the will. You know, when someone passes away, they leave their will and they say, well, this person gets X, this person gets something else, so forth and so on. And that's written inside. On the back is written the instructions for executing the will or executing the title deed. So if this is a title deed, I, I believe it's actually both. I believe it's a title deed and it's a will. And on the back is written uh, the instructions for execution, the instruction for how whoever gets this title, this land title, how they how it's transferred to, um, to whoever gets it or how the will should be carried out and so um, written on the inside on the backside means that it is again a legal uh, some kind of legal title someone is bequeathing something to someone else land or or you know what other what, whatever other property so that's what this is this is a deed of trust or and or a will seal with seven seals well that term seven we see throughout the bible it means completeness we call it perfection but, but I'd have to use completeness because the proper translation of the word per perfect is complete. It doesn't mean good because as we'll see later down the road, Satan, the devil, the great dragon has seven heads. Well, he's not good. So seven does not mean perfect goodness. It means complete. He, he is completely evil. And that's why he has these, that's why the, the Satan is, com is depicted in sevens. So seven just means complete. This means this is a complete deed. To, so whatever this is a deed to, it is complete. And I believe that this is the title deed to the planet Earth. That's going to become more clear as we see the effects when this scroll is open. But just put that in your mind right now. This is the title deed to the Earth. Whoever has this has claim, legal claim to the Earth. 
uh, verse 2. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. So that's basically asking a question. Who was who worthy to, to take the title deed of the earth? And who, who, who owns it, basically? Now, as to why the earth has a title deed and as to why it's currently in the possession of, of God, we will, we will we'll get to that in a second. Let's just read a, a couple more verses. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. And technically, that look at it means look inside of it. It doesn't mean that you couldn't look at it. Obviously, John was looking at it. Everyone saw it, so, so you can look at it. But, but when it's, that term look at it means look inside of it. No one was able to loosen the scrolls and actually read it. No one is able to, no one is worthy to take title deed to the earth. Now, why is that? Does someone ever possess the earth and have title to it at some point? Because, you know, even as God holds it, it's, it's rolled up. No one no one is currently possessing the earth as of this moment in time. And this is, is the future. We see that this is after the church age. We're, we're still going on that trajectory. So up till the future, you know, let's say that the church is raptured tomorrow. Then this scene is, is showing that no one has control over the earth, not even God, at least not legally. But that wasn't always the case. We know that in Genesis, we see in chapter Genesis chapter one and two, God originally gave control of the earth to Adam. He commanded Adam. He said that the earth is yours. You know, you are to you are to subdue it. You are to just it's, it's yours to to take over and to rule. But what happened? Adam relinquished that right at, at original sin. When he fell, he gave up the right to the planet Earth. Now there are many who say that when he gave it up. Uh, he gave it over to Satan. Well, no, that's not what happened, obviously, because if that were the case, then Satan would have the title deed. He doesn't. What happened is that when Adam sinned, um, the earth was just kind of up for grabs, and Satan has has um, active control over it because he has, has basically has the most power. Now, the earth is in a state of basically a chaotic state now. No one has complete control over it. There have been nations and empires that have come and gone, but no one has ever completely controlled the entire planet, even the so-called world empires, you know, Babylon and Greek, Greece and Persia and Rome, they've controlled a good portion of the earth, but no one's ever controlled it from pole to pole the entire earth. It's never happened. In fact, if you go back to the series on the, what I call, you know, know your enemy, when I talk about the you know, Satan, fallen angels and these territorial spirits, they all have had, they all have a certain amount of control. In, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, 32, we see that when God divided the nations after Babel, he put certain angels or Elohim. And again, Elohim is not, does not mean God as we think of God, not God the Father. Elohim really means someone who dwells in a spiritual realm. God is called an Elohim, not because that's his title, but because it's, it's basically a, a, it's a designation of, of basically residency. God is resident in the spiritual realm, so he is an Elohim, and all the angels are also resident in the spiritual realm, so they're also called Elohim, not because, in God, God, God the Father refers to other angels as gods. You know, you have these fallen angels, you know, you have the gods of the Amorites, of the Hittites, of the Amalekites, so forth and so on. They're still called gods, and that word God is, is Elohim, but these different Elohim were given a designation over the other 70 nations that God divided the earth into. So they, so they, so, so there's been people who, have, people, angels, angelic beings, Elohim, who have had authority over a portion of the earth, but no one has ever possessed the entire earth, not even Satan. 
I mean, to put it in terms that we can understand, Satan kind of has squatter's rights. You know what a squatter is. As if, if, if someone builds a property and a home and they abandon the home for whatever reason, and then someone sees how his home, his house is abandoned, I'm going to come and live here. Well, they're living there, but they don't own it. They're, they're considered squatters. And whoever legally owns the property can come in and evict these squatters because they don't own it. Well, that's the same thing with earth. Right now, Satan has squatters rights over the earth because it's not in possession of man anymore. Adam gave that up. It's not in God doesn't have possession of it uh, legally because you can see by the scroll here, he hasn't opened it. He doesn't, he has not taken possession of it. So Satan and his fallen angels kind of have squatters rights and they're going to get evicted. And we're going to talk about that when we, when we get to Revelation chapter eight and nine. But where we are now in, in verse in verse three, no one in heaven or, or earth or under the earth is able to open. So no one is no one is worthy to take legal possession of the earth. No one in heaven. That means no other angels, no other Elohim. That means no one under the earth who's under the earth. That's fallen angels, fallen angels and Nephilim, who are the offspring of, of the mischief that happened in Genesis chapter six. I'm not going to get into that right now, but they're they're also spiritual beings. They can't open it. So no one is able to open it or look upon it. Okay, verse four. So I, being John, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look in it. Now that word wept, that phrase wept much actually means sob, sobbed convulsively. So this is like, I mean, he is seriously crying hard here. So that means this book is, is very important to him. Why? Because John realizes that someone needs to take possession of the earth. In order for God's will to be fulfilled, in order for the final kingdom to come in. These are things that John has been waiting for, that all Christians are waiting for, that all of earth is waiting for. It can't happen until someone takes ownership of earth. And the fact that no one is able to, no one in the earth, under the earth, in the heavens can take it, John is feels is hopeless. Verse five, but one of the elders, one of the 24 elders, who I believe are the church, and we'll, we'll get into them in a minute. We talked about it in, in chapter four, but we'll, we'll talk about it again soon. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Well, this, this is very interesting because of the titles that the elders give to this person who we're, we're going to see in, in verse 6. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, we're, spoiler alert, we're talking about Jesus here. But these are very interesting titles because they are very, very Judah, Jewish. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That is a Jewish term for Jesus. The root of David, a very Jewish term. Because in in uh, the end of the book of Genesis, when uh, Jacob, the um, the patriarch, was giving a prophecy over all of his sons, when he gives a prophecy over Judah, who was a royal line, the Judah, Judah's descendants were, were the kings of Israel. Judah is called a, a lion's whelp. Whelp, meaning the you know a, a child, a child of a lion. This is so basically, but however, Jesus is the lion of the tribe. He's a grown-up lion, the adult lion of the tribe of Judah. So he is the old, if so. If Judah is if all the physical descendants of Judah are kings, well, and they are you know lion cubs basically. The adult lion is the ultimate uh, uh, ruler of Judah, and of course, he's called the root of David. David is the ultimate king of, of Israel. David is the most decorated, the most beloved king of Israel. So Jesus is not only the descendant of David; he's also the root. The the originator of David. And again, very, very Jewish titles. I mentioned earlier in an earlier uh, broadcast that um, once we get past the seven letters of seven churches, this book gets extremely Jewish. And this is very Jewish. We're no longer in the age of the church. 
God is not dealing with the world through the church anymore. He's now dealing with the world through Israel. And we're going to talk about that actually quite a bit in the next episode when we preview the period of time called the tribulation. Uh, verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, seven, having seven horns and seven eyes. Um, the, uh, the title here should actually be not a lamb. It should be the lamb as it had been slain. So this is a proper title. And you'll, you'll notice this even in the King James Version, which I'm reading, the New King James, which I'm reading, the, the lamb is, is, is a, is a, the word lamb is capitalized, meaning it's a proper person. This is, a, this is the lamb. Who is the lamb? Well, this is Jesus. And again, very Jewish. Jesus, is, his Jewish term is a lamb of God who had been slain from the foundation of the world because the sacrifice of a lamb in, 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 um, in the Jewish law was a precursor to Jesus. So again, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David, the the, the Lamb, who, as though it had been slain. Uh, the, uh, very, very Jewish. And another interesting thing here is the this Lamb, who is again Jesus, looks as though it had been slain. And this gets back to something that I talked about well, way back, not in the Revelation Unveiled episodes, but this would go back to the podcast I talked about um, during the serial on the resurrection of Jesus. So you can go back to the podcast. I'll link it in the show notes. I talk about the fact that one of the, after Jesus' resurrection, there's an interesting pattern that happens where Jesus appears to several people who knew him very well. He appears to Mary Magdalene. Magdalene, he appears with disciples, um, his very close disciples. He appears to um, some external disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And one thing that's common is that they have trouble recognizing him. Mary doesn't recognize Jesus when, when she's at, near the tomb. She thinks he's the gardener. The disciples don't recognize him. They say none asks who he was, knowing that it must be Jesus. And when Jesus appears in the upper room, they think he's a ghost. People have trouble recognizing him. And I think the reason is that he kept all of his scars from the brutality of the crucifixion. We focus on the two scars that uh, the apostle Thomas, I'm sorry, the disciple Thomas talks about. He says, you know, I won't believe that Jesus rose until I put I, I put my fingers in the, in the nail prints in his hands and I put my hand in, in the, the spear print in the side, in his side. So we know that Jesus kept those scars that he, in, in his resurrection form, his resurrection body, excuse me, he still had the nail prints and the spear print, the, 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 the spear wound. But we always assume that that's all he had. We assume that Jesus in his resurrection body was just this perfect um, beauty, beautiful, glorious form. And the only thing that was different is that he had scars in his, in his hands and his side. That's not logical. If Jesus kept the scars of, the, of, the, of his hand on his hands and in his side, wouldn't it be logical that he kept all the scars, the brutality of being beaten senseless? of having his beard ripped off. And in the book of Psalms, it says that they plucked his cheek, meaning they tore off his beard, which would, which would have tons of scar tissue. And that even in one of the um, uh, prophecies of Jesus, it says he was marred more than any man, even more than the son, son of a man, it's more than the son of a man. Basically, he was beaten so badly, he was not recognizable as a human being. And I'll put that verse in the show notes as well. Or and I'll, actually, I'll just link to to that entire episode and you, can, and you can listen to it for yourself. But the point is that when Jesus came back, he kept all his scars. He would have looked really, really brutally, still brutally beaten, healed. Uh, he's, but he still have the scar tissue just as he had the nail prints and the, and the, the, the wound in his side. So and I think that's what John is saying here. He sees the lamp as it had been slain. He, Jesus looks like he did when he was slain. Having seven horns, horns are, are authority. And seven horns means complete authority. So Jesus had, has all authority 
and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent throughout the earth. And seven eyes means he sees everything. It's, it's, it's a, a declaration of God's omnipresence. In verse 7, and he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus has the authority to take the, the scroll. So he is the owner of the earth. Why? He won it at Calvary. He undid Adam's original sin. We talked about that quite a bit in the series on Jesus. You can go back to that in Faith by Reason and look at our entire series on the Redeemer, on Jesus, and how he undid Adam's sin. Adam originally, as I said before, had authority over the earth. He had legal authority. He gave it up when he sinned. Jesus did the opposite of Adam. Instead of um, it's, he, it's, instead of falling for sin, instead of falling for the machinations of Satan, he lived, lived a sinless life that Adam did not sin. He resisted the temptation of the devil and he paid Adam's price. He paid the price of death and he went down to Hades and he was resurrected. He has the keys of death in Hades. He undid Adam's sin. So he is the he has the legal authority to take the scroll. And he is now and now he has it. And now we get into the worship stage. Now, when he had taken the, the scroll, verse eight, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the saints have been praying for this. Every person who's ever been who's ever been a Christian, who's ever been a believer going back you know, in the pre-Christian days, have longed for the day that the earth is reclaimed. And the, so these golden bowls represent all of their prayers. And the incense is, is a sweet aroma because our prayers, it says elsewhere in the Bible, are a sweet aroma before God. And they sang a new song. I like this. This is a song that's never been sang before. And, and I talked about this song in the commentary on verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 4. Here's a song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. This song is one of the proof points that the 24 elders are the church because only the church was redeemed by God. Angels were not. And only the church has been made kings and priests unto God, not the angels. So these 24 elders are not angels. They are the church. Now, to be fair, the Masoretic, I'm not the Masoretic text, the, the majority text and the Textus Recepticus uh, of the church of, of Alexandra, do, uh, do not make this a personal pronoun. They don't say redeemed us and made us kings and priests. It says redeemed a people and made them kings and priests. So that is that is another trans possible translation, but I don't think it fits when you look at all the other evidence that, that, the, that the elders represent the church and that the church is in heaven. We talked about those proof points in chapter four, so I'm not gonna go into that, but I think there's strong reason to believe that the proper translation should be, he redeemed us and made us kings and priests and the us are the 24 elders who represent the church but i mean if you don't agree with that if you if you um, tend to side with the majority text or the text textus recepticus that's perfectly fine because this isn't not the only this verse isn't the only reason the song is not the only reason i believe that the church is in heaven i gave other reasons as well but i believe this is a strong reason uh verse 11 and then i looked and heard the i looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That basically means innumerable. That's John's way of saying there's so many creatures and, and angels and beings here. I can't even count them. They sing with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So they are just they're Basically, all of heaven is erupting into praise because this is something that's important. This is big. 
I mean, we're making sure that a fine point is put on this. I, I think it just should be very, very clear that this is a big, big deal. This is the culmination of everything that God began. Revelation is the end of the book. The, the book began with the fall of man and this book cannot end. This conclusion that everyone's been waiting for for thousands of years cannot be concluded until the earth is reclaimed. And so that's why all this praise bursts out and it is spectacular. There's been no, nothing, no, no equivalent of this level of praise in all of history. Maybe since even before creation as, as we know it. 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all of them and all that are in them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. So yeah, every creature. So this isn't just um, the sentient beings like um, angels and the 24 elders who are the church and all, all the other entities in heaven. This is also every creature, every animal on, on earth. They all are praising God. Why? Because as Paul says in, in, uh, in Romans, all of creation groans, waiting for the revelation of the children of God, waiting for the time when the earth will be redeemed. So it's not just human beings who are waiting for the world to be redeemed. It's not just the angelic beings who want the world for, to be redeemed. Every living creature in the on the entire planet, Paul says they've been groaning for centuries, waiting for this to happen, and it's finally happening. This this time of redemption of the earth when the earth will be cleansed of evil and it will be it will come back to the state of, of Eden that Edenic state is finally at hand and again this greatest praise that's spiritually that's ever been witnessed and ever been experienced happens now 14 then the four living creatures say amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever and that that's the conclusion and that's really what's happening here. So this is a you know, shorter uh, broadcast, which is great because we've gone so long as some of the other ones. But yeah, to summarize it, this book, this title deed to the earth that has been vacant up uh, since the fall of Adam, that God's just been holding on to, waiting for someone worthy. And of course, Jesus became worthy of it 2,000 years ago. So the question is, okay, if, if his death and resurrection made him worthy, why didn't he take it then? Well, the reason is us, frankly. The, he was waiting for his bride because after, when Jesus left earth, he when he ascended, he didn't ascend to, to do the reclamation project that's going to happen here in Revelation. He ascended to build a place for his bride. Uh, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, uh, chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you into myself. So for the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been preparing a place for his bride, waiting for his bride, us, to be ready. So the only thing that has held Jesus back from finally coming and claiming his title deed to the earth has been us. He's been waiting for his church to be ready and it's taken us at least 2,000 years to, to be ready for him to come and claim us. So obviously when the church age ends and he can come, he comes and claims his bride and the bride now lives in the father's house. Now he can take possession of what he won on the cross, what the earth has been waiting for. And that just uh, results in this massive explosion of pent-up celebration, celebration that's been waiting to happen for six to 10,000 years, depending on how long you believe we've, we've been on Earth since the time of Adam and Eve. I'm not going to get into that, but you know, it's anywhere between six to 10,000 years. We've been waiting for it, and it's finally happened. And now, in order to reclaim the Earth, 
it's got to kick out the squatters. Remember I said before that Satan and his minions, and, and that, that includes his human minions, not just the spiritual ones, have been squatting on the earth. They've been in control of it. All the world empires that I mentioned before, and even to this day, all the evil that infests the world. Because if you look, the earth is not currently being ruled by good men and women. The earth is being ruled by people who are, frankly, evil. Whether you consider them our, our current politicians, who I think would fall in, under that category of evil. You have again, the, the satanic evil behind them, the, the spiritual evil that is behind the world empires and the bankers and the military forces, all of which subjugate the earth and are causing massive amounts of suffering. All of, the, all of that needs to be dealt with in order for Jesus to take uh, to take possession of the earth. He's not going to take possession of the earth as it is now. This earth is currently not worthy of him. What ha what needs to happen is Jesus needs to make the earth worthy of him. He needs to kick out the squatters, get the, the bad people out of the house, clean the house up, and only then will it be worthy of him to bring his bride into. Which takes us right to our next area of study, which is the tribulation. The tribulation is one of the most documented events in all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Second, possibly to the prophecies of the advents of Jesus. Some would argue that there are even more prophecies about this period of time we call, that we call the tribulation, more prophecies of that than of the advents of Jesus. Maybe, maybe not, but I think it's close. You have entire books, many of the minor prophet books, Joel, the book of Joel, the book of Zephaniah, Zechariah, areas of Hosea, um, areas of Amos, of Micah, of Malachi, talk about this time, this period of time, the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus talks about it in Matthew uh, chapter 24. The book of Daniel, I would say more than half, I would say two thirds of the book of Daniel talks about it. Uh, 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 at least half the book of Ezekiel is all about it. Big portions of Isaiah talk about it. Wide portions of the two go gospels, excuse me, the, the two books of Peter talk about it. Jew talks about it. It is this period of time, even though it's a sh very relatively short period of time, somewhere around seven years, give or take, is so climactic and, and, and cataclysmic that, again, there are tons of prophecy about it. It's this time of judgment. It's the apocalyptic time that we all know is coming. Whether you are religious or secular, whether you are Christian or not, you know that there is an apocalyptic time coming. We see it in our movies, in our TV shows, in our books, in our literature. We instinctively know that this time is coming and it's overdue. But the question is, what's the purpose of the tribulation? Is the pur purpose of the tribulation just for God to finally get all of his pent up anger out and just slaughter people and, and, and rain down terror? Or are there other reasons for the tribulation? We're going to talk about that in the next episode. In the next episode, before we get to Revelation chapter 6, which is many people see as the beginning of this a time of tribulation, this time of Jacob's trouble, we are actually going to do an introduction. I'm going to do an entire episode where I just introduce the tribulation. I will we'll give a big picture overview of the tribulation, including, again, what its purpose is, why God is doing it, why he's doing it during this time, and what will be the result of it. And then we'll get into the minutia. So in the next episode, I'm going to give you, again, a big picture outline of the tribulation and an introduction to it. And then we'll start to get into the actual verse by verse study of Revelation chapter six. And I will give you the traditional view of what Revelation chapter six is that most commentators agree with. 
And after that, I'm going to spend a few episodes, probably maybe up to you know four or five episodes, giving you my different take on Revelation chapter six, which is very, again, very, very distinct from the traditional view. Doesn't mean it's right. In fact, probably means it's wrong because I haven't seen many other people talk about it other than me in, in, in the way that I present it. But you know, it'll be something it'll be something fascinating and something controversial, which is what we do here on Faith by Reason. But in the next episode, we introduce this time of trouble called the tribulation that will really make up the majority of what we'll be studying uh, in the book of Revelation going forward. So thank you for listening and thank you for watching. I appreciate it. Uh, please make sure to like this video so it gets us a little higher up on the YouTube uh, channel so more people get to see it. Please subscribe via YouTube by hitting the subscription button and hitting the notification bell so that you can get these episodes as soon as they are up. You can also subscribe by uh, putting your email into faithbyreason.net in the right navigation bar and we will just send you, you, you make sure you, you get the, the, um, the episodes when they're available that way too. And I will talk to you next week when we introduce the time of trouble called the tribulation.